Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop Podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers. On September 21st, Lighthouse welcomed back former Denver Poet Laureate and Beacon Award for Excellence in Teaching instructor Chris Rancic for a book release and homecoming celebration. Chris read from his latest collection of poems, Mummer, Prisoner, Scavenger, Thief, as well as from his numerous other books. Prior to the reading, we recorded a number of Chris's friends and former students reading their favorite poems of his. Their recordings precede Chris's reading on this podcast. Hi, this is Roger Whaling, and I'm going to read a couple of poems by Chris Rancic. The first one is Dream at the Intersection. It's unexpected, coming as it does from your blind spot. A truck carrying buckets of paint that clatter, spill, and splash onto asphalt. The browns and greens and yellows commingling with blood. The result, your demise, is a magritte, a surreal scene, a pastiche. Helicopters hover instantly, distant cameras capturing the composition meant to tickle television screens at 10 p.m. The first thing to go is your voice. So you lie along the curb, blinking at paramedics whose fat hands tear the plastic bags, coiled contents springing towards your veins. Crows come from miles away, roost on a microwave tower, nonchalant voyeurs. A strange woman kneels and grasps your hand, at first a comfort until you sense she'll never let go. Her irises turn to rainbows circling dark stars. Her message simple, these black discs are doors. Systole and diastole slow, as though the oarsmen of your boat approach the dock. A numb foot claims an ankle, then a knee, and fractures cease to throb. You recall a girl you kissed by a stream, a summer night, in a life you now know was borrowed. The second poem is Sunday Morning on the Corner of Lost and Forgotten. One, rain paints the plywood sheets where windows were, and each droplet is a prayer ignored by gods, grown tired of supplicants kneeling in filthy alleys, where yesterday's expletives pocked the brickwork Conditional surrender sung by people so poor even dumpsters sit empty behind their narrow tenements. The rusted steps of loose-hung fire escapes, thick with fat pigeons who won't stop dropping two-tone insults, and cooing remonstrations at the derelict church, and they all take flight at once every time a gun goes off. Two. If clouds part night, still falls, wake late, and exhaust will already have made the morning reek and urban religion's incense to bless the shared space, dawn its best bet for forgiveness. Three, woman conversing with her purse, walks the median between lanes, two worlds rushing at her, a bus heading back to a nostalgic regret, and a truck towards what might happen, 
billboard depicts a sleeper dreaming without reality to measure against and no voice to wrestle silence into conversation. Though a clock tower bell marks the moment eternal, the now wherein she is free. This is Gail Benezra reading about Roger. Does the bear own Roger? Does the bear own Roger or Roger the bear? Are any of us anywhere near the right place? Who owns what, when, where? My money is on the bear because it's the prisoner whose cage is a shrinking wild place, ruined lodgepole for bars, a swollen tributary for a natural boundary. But Roger owns wisdom, that ability to see through the trees, the elusive peace. He won't admit it, but Lorca makes him shiver, and the bear will never read romance sonabulo, and Roger will never the nevermore sleep in a cave. Morning light found them staring into each other, full of recognition. Make of that what you will. The bear did own Roger, but gave him back himself, which was the greatest gift, which changes everything. And then I'm going to read Stealing the Beautiful. This morning, rising from my last dream, I was still drunk on the sound of small waves shushing pebbles over lakeshore shallows. I stopped to look back at the sigils my bare feet printed as I ran in the heavy dew all down the length of the dock. It's good to pause and shiver at the brink of a fast-fading vision. Toe-test that glossy black water before you leap out over its black mirror and submerge yourself awake. Canoe, canoe, one. Choppy water where mud banks narrow, smooth confluence of river and creek, gone bugs, carapace, hugging a stalk. These are messages, ephemeral ripples and snowmelt liquor, Summer released sigils in clay, but no hand, no stylus. Reeds and weeds slant and cross like ogham on stone or mysterious rune. Canoe, canoe, paddling, paddling, drought-shallowed stream, green and brown straightens, widens, and this old boat scrapes rock, incising another striation to ponder all winter while it leans bottom up against a barn's weathered wood. Lines intersecting gouges and dents, each mnemonic for noons on the flow and nights under stars and mornings when magpies squawked the world awake. Two, fast shallow water rock-softened shins and cans of cold beer on wide, sandy spits. Friends around a fire pit, plates of hot food, and good riddance to yesterday's devil and tomorrow's, too. Give us sand between toes and songs a river makes. Give us sunset on black water, twilight, 
when boulders seem green beasts breaching yellow spurge and willow, short grass and flotsam, choked eddies and islands, and great toppled cottonwoods crowned with still green leaves. This is Roxanne Banks Malia reading Kelsey on the Swing and to a friend on the death of her mother. Kelsey on the Swing. I think you may abandon gravity this time, swinging out over the plush green, your tough hands gripping the chains, your toes pointed as I showed you once, summers ago, myself as innocent a father as you are a girl. What keeps you here with me, I know. Not gravity or boundary. Nothing but your youth, which is mortal as mine was. Still, I will sit here in the shade, watch you arc toward an apex fore and aft, your pale hair the flag of a nation I once lived in and was forced to leave. Girl with a thousand dreams, you will not have them all, but I shall not say so. No, not I here in this garden of the possible. To a friend on the death of her mother. You may hear her weeping, her emptiness filling the space of a room she hardly knows, the corners abandoning light in the morning. There's no way to reach her. She's gone, already gone. Let her go. Even drifting together over sad oaks and soft inclines of gold country, she would leave you eventually, her hand, her outstretched arm receding until distance blurred, their shape already, youth untwined in you, tangled as hair in motion, like the surface of a brook. Turn to that world, to the place of survivors, where I have lived these few years, fatherless, a ghost leaving scent on my pillow in my shirts. I'm Harriet Stratton, and I'm going to read Imagination Man from Chris Rancic's Mummer, Prisoner, Scavenger, Thief. One. He hikes along a creek that doesn't flow, walks up a canyon that will not echo, makes up all the things he knows. A mule amenable to heavy bags, his split hooves, his back that sags, fattened on apples, good grass, and figs. He ditch sleeps behind the supermarket. Midnight delivery doors make a racket. In such a jungle, he hides in the thicket. Dreams of green water, white sand, the scent of exotic fruit on the wind. A sun that gently erases his mind. He sometimes forgets that he is who he's been. No longer believes in ghosts, though he's seen a mysterious man with a certain sheen, walking torn and naked in tall, wet grass. What he wouldn't give if he could ask, what is the secret to living with less? Two. 
I want a dram of whiskey, said Imagination Man, walking into a dangerous room, the most dangerous man of all. Let's see some ID, some ideas that don't stink. Let's see fruit on the goddamn tree. And behold, it was so. What does it mean to behave as a man? Can anyone here tell me that? He said to the assembled and knocked back his drink and vanished. Three. He was worse than some, but better than most. Did his best, for example, with the ancient books. Licked dust from his fingers to turn the pages, scared off silverfish and caressed the spines. Did his best to discover the ancient books and the wisdom within that might have been lost. Scared off silverfish and caressed the spines of girls who followed him into the stacks. And the wisdom within that might have been lost poured over him honey of a golden hue. And the girls who followed him into the stacks hid mysteries in their mouths, those vessels. Poured over him honey of a golden hue. Amid those perfumes, such ethereal music and mysteries in their mouths, those vessels that later fell silent to him on the street. Amid these perfumes, the ethereal music within their limbs, the language he'd guessed that later fell silent to him on the street. Who was worse than some, but better than most? Four. Two moons, not just the usual one, not far to go and ready to run. He told Crow and Crow called back. All in the murder would conceal his track. He whispered to Fox to show the way, to blend with weeds at the end of the day. No music needed, but the sound of breath, rhythm of footfalls, stars as a wreath. Coom Song Inside the song, a wing, a steel string, a strong breeze tinted with sweet pea scent of forbearance. Inside the lie, a truth, another try, a month of silent, dust-dry snow, a morning of dog sleep inside a dream, a dream, a room, a grove green, Midstream, a roan mare, a poor prayer to gone gods. Inside hunger, power, the hour of knowledge of nothingness. A witness to all this, to the inner thigh, the come cry, dying, drowned in a sun-shocked croon. Inside the wind, a calm, a balm. A wand, a vintage, saved, and a nicked mug made for such nectar.
This is Kirsten Morgan. Write as if you have something to say. Write as if you had something to say, as if the sun were burning a hole in your chest, rising behind frosted trees on some October morning, willing to illuminate even reeking heaps of trash, the backs of wretched bars where drunks tilt, emptying their sacks of misery into a common lake. Write as if you were going to die, because you are, and write as if you might live forever and never be held to account for anything you scribed. Write, write, and forget the hyenas cackling beyond your canvas penumbra. Write for broken men who slept last night beneath the bridge, only a filthy river to sing them to and from the boondocks of dreams. Write for the man in his sleek black car who believes in the necessity of cruelty, who sends back his steak for being too rare, but makes love as if gnawing raw meat. Write for the cougar high in the tree, watching the hunter below reload. Write what you taste, what you hear. Give even the pestering fly its due. Acknowledge the worm. Acknowledge the bulbous fungus erupting from a fallen spruce. What use is silence if you are not properly cloistered, content to noiselessly disperse when your allotted span of years concludes? Write in your chilly cell and ignore the matins bell, the abbot's remonstration, and never submit to prostrate your pen. Write as if you were made of unassembled lightning hidden in a thunderhead riding high above a forest of tinder dry pine. Unleash yourself, knowing you need not aim. Write now, since there is no other time. Write whether you want to or not, whether you are instructed to sit still or ordered to move. Write what you want to, not what shills insist will sell. Write as if your tongue were a fire, your hands possessed, your lungs awash in pure oxygen, your heart in adrenaline. Pause only briefly at imprecise words, searching your undersides for concealed creatures writhing in rich murk. Write longer than you should, sharper than is fair. Explore the very corners where the light won't shine. Write as if you had something to say. Because if you do, you have. And next is watching the eviction. The upthrust legs of the pink plastic chair atop the sad heap of abandoned gear draw my eyes from the text of King Lear. I'd rather not watch the big-shouldered men wrestling ruined mattresses stained with pain up from the basement for their pocket of coin. The ugly truth I'm relieved to know they're gone. The angry father had to go, as did the sedated wife, the bobbing glow of her cigarette at midnight in the alley, while she hosed down the lilacs with misery, will never more steal my sleep. The valley between my life and theirs was only crossed by their neglected son, who often tossed rocks at my dog and was then nonplussed when he savagely charged the gate. In dreams it was his parents my dog ate, and who then exploded his gut. I used to give the boy peppers and beans from my garden, hoping by some means to nourish him with fruits and greens. 
So I wince when I see his broken bike Hitched to the pile's peak I would like to go fix it since his dad went on strike Against fatherhood And preferred beer and berating the boy Transferring fear from his life into the smallest thing near Where will they go? Will they wake from self-inflicted dissent and take tools in their hands, a shovel and rake, and get to work? How long will a mound of abandoned belongings persist, a wound wretched neighbors probe like a lost and found? Will the boy ever be free? Will he grow wings? Somehow I hope he will know I forgive him all the rocks he threw. And every time he took the garbage out, I blessed him with poems without rancor and flinched at his father's shout. This is Kim O'Connor. I'm reading Dream of the Author. You wake before dawn, the last blacks of night, graying with something less than light. The air stirred by wind, your muse suspended by her lovely ankles from a cottonwood's thickest branch. Somewhere down the block, a black dog barks at invisible men. You lie there listening, and the cur's frantic snarls form a phrase you recognize, the first sentence of your unwritten masterpiece, a gold-threaded hymn which receded from your fingers the more desperately you reached. In the next room, your keyboard clacks, but whose hands are dancing there, not yours? You rise, hurry in to find the many pages produced yesterday are gone. In their place are slices of cheese, one sticking a pale tongue out of the stack. The doorbell rings, and you open the door to see the mailman fleeing, jettisoning his bag of junk mail. The package he left has burst its wrap and drips blood onto the step. You find inside the hideous cover your publisher will choose for your next book. Hands tap at your keyboard again, and you decide to let them go. Sure, the lexicon of ghosts will exceed in style your own. You return to bed, only to find you're now the only customer in a failing bookstore. The afternoon so quiet, you hear the shelved books murmuring favorite passages, pages straining to escape their bindings, the ink running as though words came cheap. The first tome you open, snaps shut again, as if you'd revealed its inner nakedness. The next releases a flock of swallows. Another erupts in an operatic aria. A thin volume of poems melts in your hands, its residue black phrases the poet excised. The clerk watches your every move, follows to wipe your fingerprints from spines. You find no books you wish to buy, not even your own. We'll start with what the house plant said, and this is Dee Castellina. In the morning as I make coffee, my last dream growing transparent at the edge of vision, I hear the geranium whisper, don't think me mad. I also hear rough words and crows' caws, songs in the rattle of seed pods. I feel the limbs of a lover caress my own in the river, find signs in bleached coyote bones splayed at the mouth of a cave, feel kinship when tall grasses whip in autumn wind. Sure, 
It's a gamble to tell people this. And that's what the houseplant said. Liminal hymnal. Here is a book of songs with words that lift like wings your body from all wrongs, your tongue toward what it sings. Here is the liminal light, the awakening it brings. Lie still until your sight sharpens and shapes emerge out of the ocean of night. Fruit on the trellised verge, hand that breaks the stem, mouth that answers the urge. Listen inside the dream for a voice that speaks the book, pulled page by page from a stream, bright trout on a hook, held in the palm caressed, released again to the brook, ushering you to your rest, telling you nothing you knew and everything you may have guessed. This one is Ghost and the Wen. Sometimes it seemed the tree had grown a face deliberately to peer through their back, their back window. The bark on the burl had lips where lips should be, a mouth that might speak if it could uncurl its wooden grimace. Light and shadow wrestled on the mat of grass atop meandering roots. No victor but night to close down the contest again. What did those eyes see? Was she moving toward him again and again, almost violent, her hands frightened birds? Tangling before taking hold, feathers batting the glass, Theirs was one story, but there had been others. The man who built the house, kneeling out back in the snow, praying as wind blew drifts about him. There was never any path worn beneath that tree. No fruit hung where early blossoms rode on April winds until late frost. Yet living wood grew green beneath the bark, and late at night, Twisting wood would groan as if to speak. Shirley Sullivan. Cooking lessons. One. Break the egg carefully. Not the world, though. Eat that by the rough spoonful. Two. Forget where you come from. Familiar flavors in your mouth. Watch blue flame pass through steel to simmer broth. On the counter rises dough, so soft some may doubt its very existence beyond this kitchen in Provence. The roux must not be rushed. Stir and remember long journeys. Silent departures from dim Terminals. Do not rush the room. Take time to witness gold infuse the sauce. Refill friends' glasses with laughter and juiced rubies. Three. The server brings a warm baguette 
to your sidewalk table and every sadness leaves as lights along Rue Saint-Michel reveal themselves magic lights. Yes, that's the right wine, and yes to the long walk home, and finally, yes to whatever else. Why I gave away my wings for Ginny. If we must love well just one thing before the light fades, let it be earth, not air, the body of the lover, not the idea of her body, the flesh that welcomes flesh, neither desire nor the captive bird whose language I'll never acquire. I gave away my wings because Daedalus had two sons, but the myth never mentions me. The fish promised gills, but they lied, and I barely made it back to shore. For decades I practiced my guitar, but never learned to sing. I spent afternoons in the cherry tree that refused to fruit until I climbed back down. I joined the circus, but spent each night selling tickets outside the tent, the roaring lions and the whip crack a tease. I gave away my wings because, pressed between pages, I grew flat and inky a simple shifter never close to a crow, never swift as a swallow, never hawk fierce or capable of flying in formation. Better, I found, to be bound and shelved to await some distant opening. I flew as a child, but then one day uh, I awoke, and my beak had become a pair of lips. My bones were heavy and no longer hollow, and I fell from my perch, and I fell from my perch again. But as every flying child knows, there's so much to forgive and regret. I gave away my wings and learned to love the body lying beside mine in the grass. This was worth the loss. I need never return to the sky. This is Kathleen Willard. I'm going to be reading Driving Nails by Hand. I've seen every muscle she has in flexation and repose these 15 years gone past. Those I first admired from afar the lean, taunt fibers of her legs, twin dreams of a starved boy. And later, the smoothness of her belly, the blending slope of a wave past cressing. Now, in a dusty garage, we bend together to the task of building shelves, early June heat, squeezing water to the surface of our skin. The power tools we borrowed now lie still, their cruel bits protrude silently, their wicked scimitars, the poised teeth of a wolf, turned steel at the moment of attack. She's driving nails by hand, 
hammer to head to head to head until the thin shafts sinks and disappears in the soft slant, faint scent of split pine emanating. I see her perfect bicep, mounded but not bulky, and in extension fluid, lithe between her dimple shoulder and the hard bones of elbow. The pounding of hammer shows everything in unison. This woman, such a fine machine and powerful and graceful, my own hand resisting the pull of muscle and sinew that answers each urge to reach, to take gentle hold of her arm, to feel what flows beneath. She's driving nails by hand, and I'm in love again today, as yesterday. Who was I to inherit another man's daughter, bringing to her children through secret muscles and rivers of my own, left now to build and rebuild shelters for the making of new lives? I will take her fine bones in my own again tonight, encircling again the half of self that is not self, but that a man, if he is wise and marked with luck, may find, knowing she will answer with her own strong embrace, and in that temporary union we will build a lasting house. Oil and Water Two spent storms, Gulf and Pacific, rolled currents out of Mexico until trapped in a front-range trowel, pulling in the seam between high-low pressure. Then, big wind off routed plains drove the vapor, vapor to chilly heights that could not hold. An alchemy unleashed a relentless deluge. Steep canyons purged by summer fires gave up their ashy soils, disgorged great timbers and boulders in a muddy rush. Side streams turned to torrents, joining forces, scouring channels, carving off slices of highways and farm fields down in the deeply punctured flats. 20,000 black wells waited and plutonium drenched benchland outside Boulder spilled its ghosts while taunting crows changed their cause to frack, 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 and great drums heaved crude petroleum into the suddenly swollen South Platte and the St. Brain drainage offering now a dark drink to the vast, thirsty landscape. Carolyn Jennings, Elegy for Rosa. You confessed finally it was an aching feet or tiredness in your bones that made you sit at the front of the bus. You could have trundled to a bench seat in the back. You had energy enough for that, the world soon learned. You told the driver no when he insisted that you offer your seat to the man whose pale skin was his ticket and your voice shook loose a crust of disgrace from the centuries, shuddering back through the timber of slave ships, rippling forward through the wombs of women, through the windows of classrooms and offices, flickering in flames of restaurant stoves, 
bubbling up through water fountains and greening the trees of neighborhoods where children's laughter makes a new music. How long did you sit before the cops arrived to haul you out of your seat and off the bus? When they did, into the vacuum whirled the severed tongues of bigots, shackles wet with blood, moans of mothers whose children were stolen, the rage of men whose wives were sold to rape. Would that I had been on that bus a witness. My birth came a decade later, after your work had begun to clear the refuse away. Today, your death reminds us, we've more stones to roll uphill, more seats to occupy, and more commands from fools to refute. This is J. Diego Fry. I'm going to read a poem called Dream of the Skydive. The plane is cramped, thin fuselage full of jokers and gods, people in costumes you nearly recognize, their pupils spinning. The craft climbs quickly, horizons tilting at odd angles, effervescent clouds streaming in and out of view. The humor among passengers grows grim, the laughter thin as watered milk, and there's a hand on your thigh, but no way to tell whose it is. The hatch flies open, and in comes the knowledge you must return to Earth through this portal. No one makes eye contact. No one wishes to hear the sins of anyone else, nor the excuses. You have never been so close to birds, and yet so far from their form. Your turn comes. It is best not to hesitate before entering icy water, but emptiness is different. Atmosphere, foreign without a margin of solidity, a far shore to swim toward. The leap is not of faith. You accelerate in seconds, spread-eagled, crucified by tremendous wind. Your lungs, useless as flat tires, quiver in your chest. The concept of up is an enigma, and down is different now, will never be the same. You surrender to an enemy, the first time ever, and the pond below becomes a larger lake. Free fall finished, you reach and grasp the cord. It is best not to hesitate when approaching packed dirt at this speed. You tug, and shoulders open into wings, jolting you nearly awake. Loose shoes fly from your feet, spiral away, messages in bottles sailing toward a field full of spectators who cannot rescue you. The peace, the silence and the peace overwhelm. Men were not meant to fly. You realize this now more than ever. Suddenly a bowl of peaches seems like the best meal. You yearn to land and lie long 
in deep green grass. Friends wait at the circus tent, dispassionate cameras ready to record either splat or smooth descent, their upturned faces gazing past you to the bright and flapping fabric of your shoot. This is J. Diego Fry. I'm reading the poem, I Take the Kids to Puta Creek in Winter. She only barely walks. He barely talks in sentences. A frothy, tumbled fall of words that splashes, floods the rounded rocks in my ears. He grabs the winter weeds, tall and brittle by their stalks, and yanks them out, swishes them in the creek, sprays his sister with green drops. Does the timber of her shout make the fog-shy sun slip even faster for the shadows solstice folds into slopes of coastal hills? Her translucent hair flies in the breeze. She grips dark and twisted ropes of bark and stares at me at water, eyes unsure. When we rest in the grass, we drift. Child, child, father, each of us in our craft. This is Ginny Hoyle, and the poem is Misfortune Cookies. If you are reading this, you are already lucky. Next time, check your dim sum carefully for stones. She doesn't love you as much as she loves poo-poo platter. Your habit of leaving small tips will follow you to hell. The bad news is you will not be fired from your job. Always bet on number seven. You'll still lose, but will feel strangely vindicated. You just ate too much, didn't you? Yes, the hostess sat you here on purpose. Dare to dream for you the greatest risk of all. Entropy is inevitable, but will now focus on you. The best time to invest your money was before. The one you fantasize about cannot remember your name. If at first you don't succeed, recognize this as a pattern. Any decent god would be laughing at you by now. It's time for a new wardrobe. The answer you most need went in the cookie to another table. The cat pees on your shoes because she wants more affection. Mother lied. You are in no way special. There are many new resources for those about to be audited. Cheaters never win, but since nothing else has worked. Before the forest. Before the forest pause.
Sunlight grows scarce in that cool shade, and close pines conceal rough beasts who already sense your presence. Everything feeds on everything, as it must. Willow scrub on your oxygen, thirsty arroyo on the flash flood, and you on the flesh of so many words. Sleep together one more night before the forest and bless soft grass with whispers, with sugar and sweat. Remember dreams and wait in new skin without regret. A body is an elegant room. A kiss is two clocks ticking in slow time for lovers paused before the forest who enter as one aware one cannot return. I'm Joy Sawyer, and I will read Bread and Anger Prayer in the epigraph. Arguments at home happen most often in the kitchen. Anonymous. Maybe the bananas, forgotten and going blotchy brown, give off a subtle fume, causing your spouse to hurl the wooden spoon, turn on her heel and scream obscenities, a tirade so profound, needles twitch across seismic scrolls in nearby laboratories, and squirrels in the elms scurry for their nests. Maybe salmon, sealed in plastic, nestled in darkness, spasm again in a flood of light as you open the freezer door, flicking tails as if to leap up roaring, frigid falls, remembering how it was to swim under falling snow and moonlight into a net spread out like revenge. Teenagers milk-washed cereal bowls, discarded in a rush for school, may harbor sugary curses, the residue of a thousand times no. Old salt may lose its flavor, each crystal imbued with the taste of a wish unvoiced. To sprinkle it on soup releases essence of snow from a failed ski trip or taste of paint chips off shabby walls. That blob of carbon on the oven floor, a cherry pie that oozed one August night, now absorbs abandoned dreams. The table tilts under the weight of telephone, garbage, utility bills, credit card offers, bright catalogs where models march, impossibly slender midriffs bare, skin smooth as an airbrushed memory of youth. O kitchen, troubled soul of the house, let the aroma of fresh-baked bread overcome all bitter scents and leave us this once at peace, hands touching hands as we pass the plates in communion one more night with those we love. A friend stops by to say she's dead.
not now, but on some morning yet to come, sun on her hair speaking mysteries and comfort with a stilled tongue of light, she'll say her goodbye. The body, only the body can answer the last breaths true friends take. Language grows useless approaching the bed, whether a loved one lives yet in her scented warm rooms or just disappeared there, estranged beyond reunion. Remember the day when you first trusted and spoke without art of darkness. She shivered but did not flee when you cursed demons, grinned and added her own black verses, made you feel less alone, which cannot last, which is what she came to say. This is Martha Kalin, and I'm reading two poems, um, one called Walking Into the Storm and one called Ablation. Walking Into the Storm It'll rain, I say, maybe hard if you go now. I know, she says, I know, but we've all got our raincoats and shade trees lying the way. So I watch her pack the children into a two-seat stroller while coolness rushes through the open door into our house, a ripe, cool, thick as storm clouds. The curious dark of this morning feels anticipatory, an electric thirst buzzing from the upthrust summer fields, stripped of crops, ignored by blades and the gentle touch of rain. She says goodbye. Our son chips in his own goodbye an octave higher. Our tiny girl, a silent, creamy sculpture, absorbs all. Then the door closes and they're gone. I rush to the window, not wanting them to go. Wait, I think, wait for Dad. But there they are. Already down the street, the cool wind turned by now to chill, her brown hair blowing back from her face, and sky already lowering its heavy burden down. Ablation The children appear at the door in pajamas, smelling of bath, wet hair in my face. I hold their still, very small-boned hands, skin newer than mine, less coarse, their necks and wrists supple, soft arms around my neck. Outside, when heavy snow slid down streams and melted away, I carried them both from the car over gray sheets on the grass. Their bodies slack and heavier, heavier in my arms than days before. I hold them just a moment, tense of energy vibrating against my chest, released and bounding up the steps, hands out for balance. But they might be gliding.
Hi, Chris. This is Connie Zump. I am going to read When the Buzzards Return to Crestone, and then here she said. When the Buzzards Return to Crestone. We'd spooked a dozen dark cruisers off perches in a cottonwood copse ablaze with gold leaves, and they rose prehistoric, mad black, a flapping racket ruining the creek gully quiet. And he said, Capistrano can keep its swallows. I'll take this flock of turkey vultures any day. He couldn't say what brought them back to this drainage off San Rita Cristo slopes, maybe roadkill on Highway 17, though guts lie smeared on many other roads. I know it's spring when they return, he said, as the carrion craft circled the grove and one by one settled again on limbs thick enough to hold them, their ugly, beautiful, bald heads red in October sun. They'll leave soon enough, and that means winter on the way. Nobody ever writes poems for vultures, except to curse them or render them symbols of wretched death waiting. Winged hyenas, scavengers, call them any pejorative term, but remember, they can fly and you cannot. They clean up the mess your car leaves behind. They see their mates as lovely in the trees. Here, she said, it's not what the light lets you see, she said, it's this. And she pulled my face underwater with a kiss. Like amateurs, we covered ourselves with earth, came up the hill phosphorescent as if we'd hibernated, forgotten our names. At the top, again, we remembered them and forgot only their shoes. Hallelujah, may they glow there forever above the pressed turf, the illuminated trace of pleasure turned to halo round an embarrassed moon. Okay, this is Joe Hutchison, and I'm reading Dream of the Leaving. You have chosen to leave at dawn, but dawn doesn't come. Instead, Weird women visit your bed to tell you a gate is opening, and you can pass through to a red stone land where lizards will know your name. So you rise in the dark, but your shoes are gone, and outside, summer's last cricket slows and slows and stops. The car starts itself, having been packed and waiting for days. Upstairs, you have one fork, a chipped cup, a plastic bowl of milk in cereal so old it has congealed into a brick. The car horn blares. Two hot points of light begin to spin inside your head. Who will say goodbye to the goldfish? Who will tend the trailing vine and fix that old broken door? Who, in the end, ever lived here? Voices murmur 
as though your goodbye party were a collection of doubters with their purple shirts and strange way of frowning at jokes. You realize you loved how the light waned through the kitchen window in winter when afternoon gave in and let night flood streets with cold, with dark that swallowed shadows. Now it must be done, the shouldering of bags and fumbling with key and lock, events that have already happened. You must head for the place where things are yet to be. This poem is from Lost Songs and Last Chances by Chris Rancic. The title is I Will Not Argue with the Cucumber Plant, read by Dan Manzanares. I will not argue with the cucumber plant. Brisk wind rustles the browning corn as sun slides low in its autumn slant. Strawberries bleed where heat once burned, this patch of soil to a garden turned. On such a cool and lovely morn, I will not argue with the cucumber plant that beckons feebly from its trellis, where once it spilled in June's profusion, not so gaudy now after one chill night, dripping and drooping in day's first light. What do these mute green tendrils tell us of immortality's illusion? The queen of summer has taken her lover and guides him toward her bed of leaves. First fall from the elm and ash, across the still green grass they dash toward death. His bones the snow will cover until fair spring, when in song she grieves him forth, new clad in robes of verdant cream, bursting from scattered clods of earth. Winter will be long, I know. This is how the seasons go, with summer's colors there to light my dream. I will cold nights abide, await rebirth. This is Mike Henry. The poem I'm reading is What the Boy I Was Tells the Man I Am. Don't look for me in the wrecked, blessed woods. I am not hiding among blackberries and lemon balm, nor in hip-deep snow under bare maples. I am not crouched in the split boulder's gap, feet creak muddied. Crows caw above my ghost below, but their black tongues lie. This kingdom once belonged to an army of boys marching in the sun. Their castle of sticks collapsed, the last hostage a prince released once he forgot his desire for dirt. If you seek artifacts, go dig your trenches. You'll find no bones, no ruins, just gossamer heat veiling faces, warm breezes chasing faint voices. I kiss that girl, not you. October twilight traced our shapes, and yes, you remember, her lips trembled. She since gave herself to angry men, never again tender. 
The boys you beat to tears on the grass forgave you, though you have not forgiven yourself. When will you open the bars of your chest and set free the blackbird you could not save? That sad young nun finally fled, she who leaned against her oak desk, softly weeping in the stifling room. One night she knelt and prayed in her cell, laid out a crucifix of onyx beads on the narrow bed's white sheet, gathered her garments in a paper sack, but left the black habit puddled on the floor, walked away toward a place no priest could find. Don't come looking for me now. The scar on your brow proves your legendary fall from the pear tree. Your bad shoulder aches from too many screwballs, a decade hefting newspaper bags. Your brothers, now old men, have left no children here. It's enough you still love crickets' late summer songs, bright carp in ponds, and sleek garter snakes in deep grass. Annette Taylor, Ataraxia. On a stone couch beneath a branch heavy hung with wind-polished apples, the old philosopher opened his third eye, the one only masters own. Crow was somewhere cawing of snow in the foothills falling, mutable skies teasing the tree and his flesh at once sun-warmed and breeze-chilled. Sense adrift entered him, brown leaf and moist soil, perfume of ripe grapes pendulous in shade, all their juices promises to be honored in the mouth. Melodies soft surging from every plain mixed silky wine into memory, and his tongue could taste her again, though she was gone. His hand could trace her shape in the air, pausing, then swimming again among ghost tresses, almost auburn, almost fragrant, and so never forever. Ken Weaver here reading two poems. The first from Roger Whaling's The Raveled Road is Encounter. Encounter. The bear came slowly up the hill and I sat frozen in my chair. Time seemed to stop. I see it still. The bear came slowly up the hill. I yearned to flee but not until we shared a glance that chilled the air. The bear came slowly up the hill, and I sat frozen in my chair. Then from Language for the Living and the Dead, does the bear own Roger? Does the bear own Roger or Roger the bear? Are any of us anywhere near the right place? Who owns what, when, where? 
My money is on the bear because it's the prisoner whose cage is shrinking, a shrinking wild place, ruined lodgepole for bars, a swollen tributary for a natural boundary. But Roger owns wisdom, that ability to see through the trees the elusive peace. He won't admit it, but Lorca makes him shiver and the bear will never read Romance Sonambulo, and Roger will never more sleep in a cave. Morning light found them staring into each other, full of recognition. Make of that what you will. The bear did own Roger, but gave him back himself which was the greatest gift, which changes everything. This is David J. Rothman, and I'm going to read a poem by Chris Rancic from his most recent book, Mummer, Prisoner, Scavenger, Thief, which came out from Conundrum Press just this year. It's from the Mummer section, which is the first in the book, and on the back, Chris defines Mummer as a person acting in a masked mime. Um, and this is a poem on page seven of that book called Mother Dying. Mother matrix, source and substance, from your body came a monster and an angel in one package, joyful wreckage, troubled winner, humble zero, stumbling zero. We will witness your declension, knowing nothing of this business. Mother, show us what's below us present, future, past, or never. First you birthed us, now you leave us. We are now lost in a forest, lost the children who adore us, lost the scout who knew the route, gone the moon, dry the well, touch the stone, hear the bell. This is an astonishing poem. Like many of the poems in this book, it uh, sort of almost seems to imitate mother goose rhythms and those very short lines but with such fierce passion cunning mystery uh, technically brilliant and emotionally and spiritually fierce what a great piece of work thank you as always chris I knew what it took. I was <laughs> God. Um, it's such a beautiful thing to be back here at Lighthouse. Um, I am a person who all my life has fled from communities of various sorts, and this was the only place where I think in my entire life I ever felt fully welcome. And that is saying something. So uh, it's wonderful to be among you and to see so many friends. I wish I could stay up all night drinking with you and talking and catching up. 
Now, that's probably not going to happen, but uh, not because I don't want it to. So thank you for coming. And uh, I also want to say that not a single one of us would be here. Uh, and I always do this, but I want to do it one more time, if not for the incredible vision and follow through of Mike Henry and Andrea Dupree. Will you put it together for me? Uh, I am sitting down this evening, just so I don't topple. Uh, I'm here courtesy of uh, the best of medical science, uh, especially some very, very powerful painkillers. So I just want to thank each and every one of you dolphins for coming. I'm going to start with a, a very special poem, special to me, uh, written by a dear friend of mine. He's not here tonight. I'll do my best to channel Aaron Abeta, uh, one of, I think, Colorado's very fine poets and uh, a fifth generation uh, uh, resident of the San Luis Valley, a man of incredible integrity. Um, when Shannon and I were forced to move from Denver, which we went kicking and screaming, uh, we were not gone very long when I received a uh, letter in the mail from Aaron. And uh, in it, he sent me this beautiful poem. And so it evokes Aaron's uh, references and culture and, and thoughts, but he also uh, has, he wrote this for me, and I want to read it to you. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of writing. And it's called Ricky Still Loves Lulu. I love her eyes, the green and faint brown, which reminds me of our home, the places where river meets llano, and maybe this unto itself is another definition of love. I imagine her flute upon the saints and silent congregation, each lost among their own prayers. I think of my friend Chris, his wife ill, a move to the sea that will help stave off what the mountains and wind bring more quickly than ocean friends than ocean. Friends offer them secular prayers, and I don't know what those are. I only know the prayers of old ladies, or hands pressed together like two perfect five-fingered bodies, prayers of repetition, hesitation, and the press of longing in the voice where even the silent, dear God, has its aching. 20 years ago, I saw a spray-painted overpass proclamation, Ricky loves Lulu. I thought he must love her so much to dangle there above the freeway, a love-struck Batman. Later, the proper authorities of such things erased their names with silver paint, but, Ricky returned, added still to his profession of love and faith. And this must be what my friends are calling secular prayers. The still of Ricky still loves Lulu. The constancy of still is perhaps what they intend with those prayers. I don't know or understand. I wonder if he persists, if he continues to love Lulu. I wonder if he would leave his life, the stillness he has grown into, leave it all for Lulu, 
move to the humid and thick sea or the gasping desert, realizing finally that his life is her. This epiphany, really, all he needs to know. His was an act of a young person. Has age ruined what he believed perfect? I wonder what thoughts entered as he took his red paint to the overpass. Did he say with this gesture, I promise to protect you, to hold you when people around you lose the compass of sympathy and decency? Did he say, Lulu, I promise to drive to the store at any hour for whatever you need. I promise to be a good man, to chop wood and light a fire of sweet-smelling pinyon when you are cold, to call because I love your voice before you say goodbye, as if perhaps our parting is imagined before it is spoken. Ricky loves Lulu, and later, Ricky still loves Lulu. How long can still remain true? How long can his seven words wrestle out from beneath the paint that attempts to erase his claims, pushing like a silvery death trying to kill what must remain true still. Thank you, Aaron. Well, I have a real indulgence this evening. I, I want to read at least one or two poems from each of my books. This is a great opportunity for me to sort of have retrospective time. I sat in a, in a room today and just spent an hour trying to decide what, what poems to read, and I admit I was overwhelmed. So I'm uh, just going to do my best um, with that. Uh, let's see, here it is. <laughs> I got this one out because this will tell you a little bit about, uh, I think I have a new understanding of doctors, nurses, patients, uh, the care of people's bodies, the, the things, the amazing things we know and the more amazing things we don't know about how the human body works. Uh, but at the bottom of it all is the compassion we show to one another when we care for them. In, in such settings. So this is a poem I wrote many years ago after a, a, a short stay in the hospital. It's called Hospital Poem, just to be clear. <laughs> this nurse's hands are small. She lifts my arm and lets it fall back into the nest of sheets. In the cool half-light I dream of a woman next door of her muffled scream soothed by the swish of people passing beyond the perimeter of my view. All through the slick tile halls, all through floors of right angles and intersections, to and from rooms of lancing pain where green lines sway like stalks of grain show video visions of major organs moved by gentle respiration bone-hinged bodies, fine integration of a hundred systems. Back in my room, the equipment hums again in the dark. Again, she comes, a blur against the blue-gray wall. And again, her hands are small and warm. She covers my body against all harm and so warms the feet I cannot reach. 
She taps into and fills a vein with liquid light and salty rain. She weaves, weaves away, away and leaves through the portal of an empty wall as my shoulders tilt back and begin to fall. A snowflake, a float, and a moonless night. just say that that was for my first book and we'll just keep rolling right along. <laughs> I might come back there a little bit later, but um, I think I started writing Never Summer. The first poems in the book were written when I was uh, probably about 21 years old. And uh, it took me you know, many years to write it because I was raising kids and starting a job. And uh, as many people here will probably understand, Sometimes you write as a poet and you write and you wonder, will anyone ever read this? Will this ever do any good for anybody? And when you're down in that place, I just want to tell you, well, it won't do any good for them if you stop. So you, uh, you know, I told myself that over and over again and, uh, and I've been very fortunate to be able to make books, which is really the only thing I ever, ever, ever wanted to do. So. Um, my second book, uh, was uh, Lost Songs and Last Chances, and it came out a few years later. Uh, I was, at that point, I was serving as a, a laureate to the city of Denver, and I received a lot of phone calls. I, I did turn down a very few invitations, but one I never turned down was an opportunity to speak to children, young people in school. And I had a teacher call me one time, and she was so self-effacing, and, and, and uh, she said, I just, the boys in my classroom don't want to read and they don't want to read poetry and I would love it if you would come as a man and read to them and show them. Uh, and she said, and they would probably really like it if you had a poem about sports. It's <laughs> like, I can do that, I can do that. So. The speaker in this poem, it's a, a pantoum, is a, a, a character, yes, uh, who is uh, playing pond hockey or skating on, on pond hockey as a boy and he grows up and I, I won't say more about it but uh, I enjoy reading this poem that's why I'm doing it uh, it's called The Defenseman's Lament <laughs> yay hockey fans go abs <laughs> Defenseman's Lament Papa was fast as a Saskatoon Zephyr blowing past in a blur of blades and color weaving past men who stood quaking like pines. No one could catch him, touch him, or reach him, blowing past in a blur of blades and color. I tried to be like him, to match speed and grace, but I never could catch him, touch him, or reach him. He said, son, use your size and play defense. I tried to be like him, to match speed and grace, but the other boys beat me in race after race. He said, son, use your size and play defense. So I learned to skate backward and crash the corners, crush the boys who beat me in race after race. I grew bigger than Papa, great shoulders and thighs, and I learned to skate backward, to crash the corners, to poke with my stick and clear out the crease. I grew bigger than Papa, great shoulders and thighs, spent Saturday mornings on the small patch of pond, learned to poke with my stick and clear out the crease, and I practiced my slap shot till I bled in my gloves. 
I spent Saturday mornings on the small patch of pond with the visions of Papa crisscrossing the ice. I practiced my slap shot till I bled in my gloves, till the cold wind made my eyes water and sting. In dreams, I still see him crisscrossing the ice. In dreams, he is lightning, sudden and blue, a flash that can make your eyes water and sting, a shot so hard it makes goalposts sing. Now in games, I see skaters flash, sudden and blue, and I hear the breath leave them when I take them down. My shot is so hard it makes goalposts sing, and my face is so scarred it won't bleed anymore. I hear breath leave some skaters when I take them down, and I fight if I have to, so my knuckles are splayed. My face is so scarred it won't bleed anymore, like the face that he wore and the hands that he used. Papa, so fast, like a Saskatoon zephyr, he blew through my life like he blew down the ice, past the defenseman who stood quaking like pines, and into that zone without any lines. Um, in the writing of this particular book, Lost Songs, I was uh, still doing a lot of really narrative poetry, and uh, I don't think I had quite honed my, my chops on some of the things I wanted to do with language. Uh, I mean, I was working on it, um, but um, one, of my, one of the poems I really also enjoy reading, and I hope you'll enjoy hearing, uh, is, you know, it's a story within a poem, so I hope you enjoyed this. It's called A Backpack Full of Glass. I want to make a window, she said, something brilliant, blood-red swaths and hot yellow curls, a liquid array of color and motion. The only problem was getting the glass home on the motorcycle. So I said, grab that backpack, the one we used for camping down at Big Sur, and she said, you want me to wear that when it's full of glass while we drive down those crazy streets? What if I fall on my ass? What then? But finally she agreed, and we got aboard that tiny Honda street machine and cruised east on San Francisco streets, up and down and up again, banking on curved lanes and bright sun and cold air, her arms hugging my ribs, tightly, her hair streaming in my rear-view mirrors. We cruised up Potrero Hill and stopped to view in silence Oakland across the bay. The bridge's gray steel sat like lines of solder on the window she'd build, blue-green water trapped in the spaces. In the stained glass shop, a woman in a frayed apron pulled sheets from tall wooden bins. I remember how she handled those transparent plates how she scored them with a knife, then tapped them so they separated with a click, their textures roped or bubbled or smooth as still water. Then carefully she wrapped each sheet in newspaper, taping the corners and stacking them on the table. And when we began to load them into the oversized pack, the woman said, 
hold on, that just won't do. I think I've got a box. I said, well, thanks, but see, we're on that bike. And I pointed out through the clear planes of her shop, front room, shop room front to our motorcycle, leaning into the slope of the leaning street. I could tell she thought we were nuts, but we'd paid for the glass, and now it was ours. I noticed as we pulled away, she came to the door just to see us go. And that's how it went, the two of us, up and down and up the hills, reversing our route, though more slowly this time. The sun on a straight, horizontal shot into the confines of my helmet, light sinking into the Pacific, and she held on to me tighter than she ever had or ever has since, trusting me almost entirely, biting back her fear, stoplights changing, the engine straining, the sheets of glass, their colors hidden, vibrating against her spine. True story, true story. No. I wondered why her grandfather sometimes used to look at me like, Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm going to read now from Asleep Beneath the Hill of Dreams, uh, which is my red-haired stepchild uh, of a book, uh, all written in second person, which if you think is easy, try it. Um, but uh, during the course of writing this book, I, I met a person who described herself as a life coach, and I had no idea what the hell that was. And I mean not to impugn anyone if that's what you do, but I, I saw no need. It's like, okay, I kind of got my stuff together. It's okay. But she, yeah, I got notebooks. <laughs> yeah, I know where I'm going. And uh, she insisted that we do a session, as she called it. And I was like, ah, okay, you're not going to leave me alone until I do this. So uh, we talked and talked, and she finally found something about which I was unsatisfied, which was the uh, place where I was working. And she said, well, why don't you uh, write about uh, uh, if you could work somewhere else, you know? And so write something down for me, and we'll share that at our next session. Right. So I had a little fun at her expense, I think. And this is called Five Days at the Dream Job. <laughs> I did feel better after I did it. So Monday. Four friendly dogs lope down a great lawn toward the forest from which you emerge, beech and oak leaves in your hair. A stream spills by, murmuring names of dead scholars. You're hired in mid-interview, then offered cold beer and pretzels. <laughs> Mephistopheles, your office mate, tells you how he and Faust play golf each week in Eden. Books lie open everywhere, their pages full of poems that break free, float through shafts of sun all afternoon, burying the path back. Tuesday. <laughs> A crew of fairies, foul-smelling and smudged, sprawl across the piles of papers as though waiting for pizzas to arrive. 
but by morning, they've managed to grade the whole stack. <laughs> Wednesday. <laughs> Every Wednesday, the building disappears. <laughs> Luckily, it only rains on Tuesdays. <laughs> Professors serve steak to custodians who teach the classes for a day. The students recite Keats and Shelley and plant their little pills like seeds. No one argues over a parking space on Wednesdays. If you get a raise, it comes on this day. You are complimented sincerely for the first time since 1996 and must sit down. <laughs> the governor, previously an asshole, calls to say he's giving up religion and promises the layoffs and cutbacks are over. You have a guest for class, the ghost of Aristotle, toting his lost books, and everyone is pleased as he begins. Thursday. <laughs> Ten years pass. Gray-tailed comets left dust in your hair as you slept beneath the stars. You teach your classes in the crevasse of a glacier to slow time. The ice is blue and clear, sun pouring through those halls, a light too pale to melt the walls. The discussion turns to Ophelia and whether the cold Danish wind made the water seem warm at the last. Friday, it's your last day. <laughs> Only your closest friend knows and does not tell. You cancel all assignments, and the students pair off to make love in the sun-splashed grass. The red light on your phone blinks, then goes out by itself. The office coffee flows chocolate and raspberry over your tongue, and breezes blowing through your window feather gentle fingers across your neck. You leave when no one is looking, out the door and down the sloping lawn toward the forest, greening with May. She asked for it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> at the time I was writing this book, we had, uh, our country had adventured itself into yet another war, which is not done yet in Afghanistan. And uh, every day, the students maybe that might be in college classrooms learning or falling in love or working to build a better America with their hands or whatever the case might be, these, these soldiers go off and some don't come back and some come back so broken. And uh, I think that I have never served, and I have respect for those who do, I don't know what to say beyond that. Um, so I hope that this poem doesn't go too far, but I, I tried to imagine, um, I try to imagine something, and we'll see how it goes. This is called Dream of the Dying Soldier. You know as soon as the bomb explodes, that you'll never lie again on grass in your father's backyard on a warm June night, stroking that faithful old dog and listening to bad pop music 
spilling from the window of your sister's room. Bright flames sear your eyes shut, and an oceanic roar seals both ears. In such silence and darkness, the faces of children surface, a boy who chased after your patrol that first day until he turned into a sparrow hawk and flew high above dusty alleys where you now hover, watching a frantic medic holding your guts together with his bare hands. I want to, I want, you want to tell him it's okay, he can just let you go, but your whispering lips won't form the words you want. When he starts to weep, you want to comfort him, but one arm won't respond, and the other is over there. What was the name of the first girl you kissed, and wasn't it really about her sister's glossy black hair? You wish the column of smoke, the smell of burning oil, would turn into chocolate, and it does. Maybe any minute, 70 dewy-eyed virgins will pile out of that burnt Humvee, readying a litter for your trip. You try to remember your absentee ballot and whether you checked the box marked crusade. Look, there's Muldoon, lost on his last day in country, and he's coming toward you, smiling. Okay, there was a rumor that I had written a new, uh, new book, and I will get to that in just a moment. I'm going to, uh, <laughs> I'm going to read. I'm going to indulge in reading a couple poems from my my fourth collection, uh, "Language for the Living and the Dead." Um, and I'm trying to find the one I want. Okay, this will take you, I hope, to an interesting place. Um, Last April, uh, after a, a major surgery, um, I liked my surgical doctor very much, and he did his best. And uh, after we had our we had our last meeting, where he you know let me know that I, I probably wouldn't see him again, and I left this poem on his uh, desk, or at least asked the the receptionist to leave it on his desk. <laughs> and I did hear back to him from him indirectly that he had really enjoyed uh, reading it. So. This is called What the Knife Revealed. I lay there on the table, a red beet ready for slicing, but dark blood more purple than imagination would ooze. Only after I shut my eyes, little poisons meant to soothe me, doing well their work. The surgeon Head chef of the meal of me marked which tissues to tear away, which to leave tattered, which to ignore until next time. Then with a steady hand, he slashed a sharp blade, incising and spreading, venturing into an interior where no suns penetrate, no breeze ever blew through shaded fronds. I can't be sure, but something like memory tells me wild beasts sheltered all these years in that deep wood leaped to my defense. But as beings insubstantial, their fierce visages were lost on the masked man. How they wailed as they were cut down one by one to fall among steel basins and gauzy beds. Nor were the birds of my inspiration 
raptors and singers, carrion eaters, able to see the interloper camouflaged in the murk. Doctor, now spelunker in my cave of gristle and throb, lit his headlamp and plunged down passages too near narrow for more mere mortals, uh, exposing graffiti left by ancient prisoners in those soft cells. The orchestra played on, bass drum heart, wind section wheezing under the influence, the piccolo run of synapses firing, the cello strings roiling in the gut. So it was he must come at last to the vein of black rock bespattered with flecks of bright ore, once rising magma but now held fast in the crevices where flow ceased. Animal, vegetable, mineral, I've always known this is all we are. But mirrors suggest another self, and so many commercials and priests insist there's more. It's hard to resist the material tug, the promise of awakening from anesthesia with wings and a good view forever. When I did wake, there was only a small window in the pale green wall looking out over a parking lot. The nurses were nice, but not angels. Breather. I feel like we should all get up and do some jumping jacks or something. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to read one more from Language for the Living and the Dead, and then I promise you I will turn to the new book. But I have to read this because of the um, loving uh, application, the application of such love from Roger Whaling and J.D. Fry and others, you know. But uh, this is a poem uh, for my friend Roger, and I would like to read it for you tonight, especially. I don't need to explain it. He'll explain it. <laughs> this is called Does the Bear Own Roger? <laughs> Does the bear own Roger or Roger the bear? Are any of us anywhere near the right place? Who owns what, when, where? My money is on the bear, because it's the prisoner whose cage is a shrinking wild place, ruined lodgepole for bars, a swollen tributary for a natural boundary. But Roger owns wisdom, that ability to see through the trees the elusive peace. He won't admit it, but Lorca makes him shiver, and the bear will never read Romance Sonambulo, and Roger will never more sleep in a cave. Morn and light found them staring into each other full of recognition. Make of that what you will. The bear did own Roger, but gave him back himself, which was the greatest gift, which changes everything. an answer on who owns the no okay keep keep trying okay keep listening yeah. 
All right. Uh, the new book, um, Mummer, Prisoner, Scavenger, Thief. This was a book that I wrote in Denver, and it was fairly complete, I would say even fully complete, when I left town in, in 2016. Uh, but because of the noise of moving and the heartache of leaving and all the other things that happened, I couldn't, I couldn't really get back to it very effectively. And, um, and then last year, uh, I received some... Uh, Let's just say I received some motivational news, and uh, I decided as soon as I got back from that that I would sit down and finish this book one way or the other. And it took me about a week. It was so it was so ready to go, uh, and I'm very pleased that it's come out. It's uh, been a, a wonderful uh, thing in a difficult year for me, so I'm happy to share it with you tonight. Um, so I'm going to read the first poem in the book, and I also want to say that these these poems are really like songs. So if I had a singing voice right now, I would, I would try to maybe, I'll, I'll try anyway. Think of them as songs, if you will. Okay. First poem is called Liminal Hymnal. Here is a book of songs with words that lift like wings your body from all wrongs, your tongue toward what it sings. Here is the liminal light, the awakening it brings, Lie still until your sight sharpens and shapes emerge out of the ocean of night. Fruit on the trellised verge, hand that breaks the stem, mouth that answers the urge. Listen inside the dream for a voice that speaks the book, pulled page by page from a stream, bright trout on a hook, held in the palm, caressed, released again to the brook ushering you to your rest, telling you nothing you knew and everything you may have guessed. Okay. Um, I can feel like I always, I, when I read this poem, and I have had a chance to do that this week uh, to people, I, I always want to try, to try to explain how much I love the rhymed couplet. I realize that it is uh, not what everyone's writing right now, which is exactly why I'm writing it, but uh, <laughs> I love the cadences of it and, and uh, uh, the song of it. So I want to read you this poem in, in uh, couplets. It's called T Tornado Comes to Last Chance, Colorado. Mm -hmm. It's a real place, and it probably is your last chance. Right? Funnel. Take me up, I'm done. Drive fierce darkness over the sun. Roaring wind velocity, lift my carcass. Transport me over plains breached by eroded buttes, ruined farms, and upturned, upturned roots. Over arroyos so dry they forgot what water is and wind is not. I'll be smarter, faster, one with lightning, more than a match for what I'm fighting. I renounce these dingy drapes, mornings of mud and frozen ropes. Give me fierce wind with a hole inside where surrendering men may hide. I've lived in last chance all my life, tilled beside my toughened wife, acres by the river snowmelt green, Dreaming of places we've never seen just beyond the banks and bend. Lift her up, please, lift my friend. Swirl her toward me, spin her near. 
eye to eye in the eye's muted roar. Chance, please, bring us together at last. Settle us with the rest of the dust. This is a uh, poetry drinking from the poetry fire hose, isn't it? Yeah. This is. <laughs> I'm going to take you on a, a short tour uh, through three poems, and they're sequenced in the book together, and I think they form, to some degree, the heart of the book. This is a difficult book for me, um, it, it tonally, and uh, but I think that's good. Uh, and in writing it, I decided to just be honest, if I could. I will just set this first poem up uh, by saying that I had been up at Grand Lake, the sort of uh, zen chill out uh, happy place uh, that I have been privileged to visit and participate in with so many good people, some of whom are, are here tonight. And I was so blissed out coming down the Rockies, you know, into Denver. And I decided, well, it's got to happen sooner or later. I'll turn on the radio. And unfortunately, as soon as I did on NPR, they were reporting the Aurora Theater shooting and the death of a uh, number of people and, of course, the wounding and the wounding of the whole city, this wounding of the state, the society. Once again, the self-harm that we do to ourselves in this country. May we please, 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 please get this right. Uh, and so uh, this poem is, I suppose, um, un forgivable, but I'm going to read you this poem, and then the one that follows it. I taught many of the students who survived Columbine, came through my classrooms. I was two miles away when the event happened. I've never been the same since. Uh, and so these poems work as a pair. And then I promise that I'll bring you back from despair with uh, the third poem in the, I'll try to bring you back. This poem is called Mr. Bloody Hands Visits Planet Gun. Going to the sale today on Glocks. The big bore one, the one I want. Bullet per second is what I seek. Lot of coyotes in a pen, etc. My senator, my senator, why hast thou forsaken us? All the people will cry around the memorial near the freeway. Yes, the lobbyist was that good in bed, and the money just too green, too tender on the senator's tongue. I automatically must take the fastest, deadliest package, give it all to me, give me that black neck protection and those Kevlar pants for my ass and a gas mask and earplugs to drown out screams. Everyone will be so sad. Even lovers will not make love. And fruits won't grow in cul-de-sac gardens, flooded with grief. Can you recommend a website for hauling down serious ammo? Yes, thanks, please. I'll pay in cash. And no, I won't need the receipt. Columbine Antiphon, it's a call and response. 
What would a father do with this news? What would a mother do? Break bones in their hands, pounding the earth, break every oath and promise. Where are the souls of the suddenly dead? Where do killers' souls go? Nowhere, nowhere. You know the place, nowhere you can know. Why does the grief of fathers pool? Why do mothers hang their shreds from a hook of silence? Their ghosts have endless memory, and the veil they haunt is vast. Right. Keep working together. Keep working together. We can do it. We can. So now to change the tenor of the room <laughs> a little bit. Misfortune cookies. I, I got so tired of reading fortune cookies at Chinese restaurants, you know, saying trite things like, you will meet the, the secret of your success tomorrow or some other such silliness. And I thought, what if we just sort of shocked people up a bit and gave them something else? No. So misfortune cookies. Think of each of these as if you were snapping the cookie open and pulling out the little <laughs> If you are reading this, you are already lucky. <laughs> Next time, check your dim sum carefully for stones. She doesn't love you as much as she loves the poo-poo platter. <laughs> Your habit of leaving small tips will follow you to hell. <laughs> the bad news is you will not be fired from your job. Always bet on number seven. You'll still lose, but we'll feel strangely vindicated. <laughs> you just ate too much, didn't you? <laughs> yes, the hostess set you here on purpose. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Dare to dream for you the greatest risk of all. Entropy is inevitable, but we'll now focus on you. <laughs> the best time to invest your money was before. <laughs> the one you fantasize about cannot remember your name. <laughs> if at first you don't succeed, recognize this is a pattern. Any decent god would be laughing at you by now. It's time for a new wardrobe. The answer you most need went in the cookie to another table.
<laughs> the cat pees on your shoes because she wants more affection. I had a vet tell me that one time. Mother lied. You are in no way special. <laughs> there are many new resources for those about to be audited. <laughs> Cheaters never win, but since nothing else has worked, feel better now? Uh. One of the great joys of, of writing poetry, if you hang around long enough and you manage to get anything in print, is that you may have the opportunity to collaborate with artists in other fields. Oftentimes this is through a crisis uh, where you uh, view a painting, uh, or an image of some kind that someone's produced, and you write uh, with a kind of tension against the painting and try to evoke that. Uh, I had the incredible good fortune to be invited to uh, write about ballet uh, by my friend Garrett Ammon, who is here this evening. And uh, yes, at the time his company was called Ballet Nouveau Colorado. They're now Wonderbound. Uh, you absolutely owe it to yourself to see these ama this amazing company, so innovative, so fresh, uh, and the, e the least dancer among them can do things I can't even imagine. So um, I was invited to come to a uh, practice for the performance, uh, and I saw two dancers in, I think the right term is pas de deux, uh, where the pas de deux. And uh, I was amazed that they worked for over an hour on maybe 30 seconds of the entire performance to get a particularly challenging move together. And I was just stunned by uh, uh, the absolute uh, strength and beauty and, and expressiveness of the dance. Um, so I wrote this poem, and it was eventually part of the collaborative enterprise of, 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 of performance. So I want to read it tonight, and thank you to Garrett. and. Um, what a great opportunity. So if you have the opportunity to collaborate as a poet, do it. It's amazing. This is written in couplets, not rhymed, but uh, couplets that gives it a certain cadence, which was my best attempt at the poem dancing. It's called Passion There. Where a flock of birds rushes overhead, a thousand wings flash in unison where limbs leave their bodies before bone and muscle rush together again, where the clasp feels the delicate signal and after much clinging unclasps, where figures by bare trees come close, her hand on his hip, unaware of all else, where she moves in pale blue light at dawn, music rustles from crimson drapes, where they share space, bones vibrate slow and deep at each caress. Where they slide between vines and leaves, always hungry in a jungle, teeming. Where they sleep and inhabit the same dream, two crows' shadows pass mid-flight. Where everyone squints at well-lit paintings, these two lovers leap too close to statues where one lover arcs 
like a crescent moon, the other one lies like a shark on an altar. Where they stand two trees across a narrow river, tossed by wind, anchored by rock, where in waves of blacktop heat she shimmers, her motions mirrored in the building's glass. Where her black hair blows about them both on the sand beside a blue-green bay. Where they spin each other like silver coins, glinting, glinting glinting in sun. Okay, all right, we'll do this. Um, another collaboration. Uh, I was uh, given, I, I was a, a brewer, home brewer, for more than 20 years, and uh, I so enjoyed, it's, it's kind of cross between chemistry and cooking, if you will, uh, with great payoff. And um, I'd gone to England and drank all the very fine cask ales that I could find uh, on my trip. And I came back and I wanted to recreate that beer. And that just at that time, I got a chance to guest brew or accompany the brewer at Wincoop, which was sort of a dream come true. And we were doing a benefit for, at the time for Art from Ashes. so we put together liquid poetry, which was a rowdy evening of reading poems and uh, drinking beer and then reading more poems and drinking more beer. And uh, you could, for seven or eight dollars, you could buy a pint glass and use that to refill and it had a poem on it. Uh, and so uh, those proceeds went to, um, went to Art from Ashes, a great organization in Denver. So I'm gonna read you the two poems. We did this two years in a row. And these are the poems that are stamped on the glass. And maybe some of you have one of these glasses at home. Yeah, great. Some of you were there. Some of you participated, Aaron and others. And, and uh, I still drink my uh, iced tea out of one of these just for fun. So these are called pint poems. And there's two of them. And the first one is, Pour Me. A small measure of twilight, foam-capped throat, coating, hurry, mollify my belly fully with a Cumbrian trail walker's cosmic tonic, teased from a barley acre, juice brewed melopia, a big spoon of wind's essence, flower zest, a bittersweet thirstbane, a tongue-blooming stream spilling pepper, coffee, chocolate, and that cool, cool finish fortifying friends around this table, lifted by laughter, by this harvest of ancient amity, a toast to precious mirth. And then the next poem is Red Blessing, for a red beer we made. Red Blessing. May you find now your lost hilarity in the molecules of amber balm, gripped in your fist, a red flood of true food for the husk of a soul you misplaced but must ever recover. So drink deep, surrender laughter among setters and saints, these companions in the infinite forest. Use any language, each word an eye chasm striking, a resonant drum, and claim this night, these friends, this poem, your home, warmed again by flavor that whispers secrets in foam and red depths.
can tell you that I wouldn't be here tonight if it weren't for the support and material care and love of so many people in this room tonight. And I'm not saying that as a platitude. You have no idea how you have sustained my family and me over the last year. So I thank you deeply uh, and, and, gen and genuinely for everything you've done. And this is the best way I know how to be here tonight and show you how much I appreciate everything. And I do. I do. Uh, I'm going to just read a few more poems. So, um, this is a poem that was composed peripatetically. You know, try that one on somebody. It's essentially a concept that you will write a poem while walking, and the trick is to write a little bit, a line, then go back to the beginning and recite everything, and then add a line and go back to the beginning and recite it. So that by the time you get to where you have a pen and paper. Hopefully it's inherited and you can jot it down. But it gives a cadence to the writing and a music to the writing. If you haven't ever done it, it's a good mind exercise. Try it. Uh, I used to do this to calm myself on my way to work. I had about a three and a half mile walk and on days where I just didn't think I could face another day without just absolutely strangling some bastard. I, I, would, I, would, <laughs> I would walk to work and I would arrive I would arrive much more peaceful than that uh, if I had done a walk. So uh, this poem means everything and nothing. Don't worry about that. Uh, listen to the music, and hopefully it will. Um, hopefully you'll you'll feel the enchantment of the of the poem that way. It's called Coom Song. C O O M B is a Welsh word for uh, hollow or a little glen. And I think at the time I was walking through. Uh, one, of the, one a little glen somewhere in, in Littleton on my way to uh, purgatory. Coombe <laughs> <laughs> song. Inside the song, a wing, a steel string, a strong breeze tinted with sweet pea scent of forbearance. Inside the lie, a truth, another try, a month of silent dust-dry snow, a morning of dog sleep. Inside a dream, a dream, a room, a grove green midstream of roan mare, a poor prayer to gone gods. Inside hunger, power, the hour of knowledge, of nothingness, a witness to all this, to the inner thigh, the come cry dying drowned in a sun-shocked comb. Inside the wind, a calm, a balm, a wand, a vintage saved, and a nicked mug made for such nectar. Okay, uh, I'm going to read one more poem from the book. I want to finish with a poem from my first book, and then I will close the evening with just a little, a 4,000-year-old uh, piece of writing that I want to share with all of you as my wish for all of you as you go home tonight. So this poem is, uh, uh, well, it will explain itself. Uh, it's called When the Woman Collapses at the Grocery Store. Yes, and it is finally, I think, about compassion. I'm when the woman collapses at the grocery store. Blood on her shin where it nicked the shelf. Blood beneath her lip where she landed hard on the aisle, aisle's polished tiles. 
but the music keeps oozing and bright boxes of corn syrup gleam on in row after row. Frozen pizzas remain medicinal as ever and cheese bricks plot just as many heart attacks. Apple skins still harbor a full complement of carcinogens and no gap opens in the floor to ceiling stack of soda six packs, those aluminum diabetes delivery devices. In the cool fluorescent glow, a man kneels and cradles her head, hands greasy from a garage job, his voice slow and gentle as warm water flowing over stones until her eyes flutter open on his and her trembling body relaxes and the world falls away. The bad music, the clamoring colors, and even the screaming child serenading shoppers stops. So there is only this unfiltered gift, the workman's compassion, shaming all evils from this space, defeating all greed, all cruelty, this sad history of hate for one moment, here, now. All right, uh, the last poem of mine is from, it's the last poem in my first book. Is that numerology? I don't know. Last poem in my first book. Uh, I was a, a much younger person when I wrote this, and so my daughter appears, our daughter appears, uh, as a little podling in the poem. She's now 30 years old and just moved to Lisbon. I miss her very much. Um, so I love poem. In the morning hours. In the morning hours, before the magpies start their ang angry cawing from the trees, before emergent sun, before the air is filled with soot and car exhaust, and parched soil begs more liquid night from a stingy, brightening sky. In those morning hours, you will close the door of our room gently so there is no cry from our daughter in her bed just down the hall. So nothing can impede us as we try the now familiar fit of our smooth skin, the silent call of mouth to mouth, the sacred and the only heat we truly give away, moving in a pool of pale blue light that gathers at our head and feet. The life so short, the craft so long to learn, but I will hold you in the morning hours, sweet, beyond all hours of the day. Will they burn away before we master anything of touch, even as we lose the thing for which we yearn the most, the lingering here on a warm beach, lost in time again until tomorrow, out of reach.
Okay, I'll say my good night to all of you, and really my goodbye. Um, I want to go back to the Epic of Gilgamesh to close. And for those of you who know anything about this, it's uh, roughly 2000 BCE that this was written and has made its way to us, the one of the great and first epic poems in our world. And uh, to make a long story, very long story short, Gilgamesh has uh, traveled the uh, adventures with his uh, uh, best friend and beloved uh, brother in, in soulmate, uh, Enkidu, and has lost him. He's died. And so he goes everywhere trying to find a way to reanimate him, to bring him back. He can't deal with the loss. He can't accept it. And finally, after all of his travels, he finds himself essentially in a bar. And uh, <laughs> makes sense. And the alewife, uh, Siduri, is there to give him this bit of advice. And may you also take it. 4,000 years ago. And Siduri poured Gilgamesh a jug of cool ale and said in a kind voice, you will never find the immortality you seek. When the gods made men, they compassed them with death and kept eternal life for themselves. But you must not dwell on the sorrows of this, Gilgamesh. Satisfy your hunger with fine food and drink and dance and laugh day and night. Let warm waters wash away your troubles so your body is clean and freshly clothed. Take joy when your child holds your hand and surely love your wife well, for these are the pleasures reserved for your short days. Thank you.